Welcome to Sokolo Radio, the on-air home of the Sokolo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Laura Villalpando. Tonight, Los Angeles writer and scholar Josh Kuhn visits Socalo to explore the current crisis of violence in Mexico. Drawing on the testimonies of victims, local blog accounts, and popular drug ballads, speaking eloquently about the pain, the anguish, and the anger over Mexico's kidnappings and killings, Kuhn invokes Hannah Arendt, Orson Welles, and the prophet Isaiah in an attempt to grapple with the nature of this terror. Moreover, he implicates the United States as part of Mexico's problem. Repeating Rabbi Heschel's refrain that few are guilty but all are responsible, Kuhn concludes this is a transnational game, as much Los Angeles as Sinaloa, as much about the Sonoran Desert as the Interstate 5. Recorded before a live audience at the Actors Gang, as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, here is Josh Kuhn. I just want to really thank you all so much for coming. They say LA has no intellectual life. This is fantastic. I also want to publicly thank Peter Barnes and the Mesa Refuge up in Point Reyes, where I was able to work out and write many of these ideas today that I'm going to be sharing with you, as well as Maggie Salazar of USC, who helped with some of the research that went into preparing these ideas tonight. So my talk tonight consists of six parts. One, the finger arrived in the mail next to the gas bill and the grocery store coupons, bubble-wrapped in a sealed envelope with no return address. By then, Luis had already been gone for two months of his 34 years. His severed finger, and they didn't even put it on ice, and he just let the blood dry, the skin purple, and the smell swell, was proof that he was alive, that he existed, that the rest of his body was somewhere, still warm and still beating. The finger meant that they wanted more money, If he was still alive, if he was, if he was still alive enough to lose a finger, then there was still money to be made. They took him from right in front of his house, in front of his wife, his three young kids inside, in plain view, in the middle of the day, on his quiet street in the neighborhood of Playas de Tijuana, a tranquil coastal neighborhood known for its remove from the chaos of downtown where the only big news of late was the opening of a new Starbucks. They asked him for simple street directions, and Luis walked over to the car to help out. They pulled him inside, and they were not wearing masks. As soon as my wife heard that, she knew things would be bad for her cousin. In the logic of kidnapping, you see, the mask is a chance for survival. If the kidnappers cannot be identified, they might consider releasing their hostage. No mask, and the release is nearly impossible. Luis must have known his fate as soon as he hit the back seat. He was never coming home. My in-laws were active in raising money. There was a breakfast. The whole family brought checks, whatever they could afford. Every dollar counted. The kidnappers wanted $2 million. We raised around $100,000. We don't know when they killed him, if he was even alive when the money was being gathered up. We do know that they drove out of town to dump his body alongside the highway on the road to Tecate. He was picked up and brought to the city morgue as a John Doe, and only weeks later did a family friend who works in forensics recognize his face in a photo search. The memorial was wrenching. There were people everywhere. The men stood on the steps by the entrance, looking like guards or escorts, trying to look tough and proud and strong, but their faces gave them away. They were outside because they couldn't bear to go in. Especially Luis's father. I had met him just a few months ago. It was my father-in-law Rogelio's birthday, and we took over the concrete backyard of one of his niece's homes right there in Playas. There were family photos on the folding tables and balloons tied to chairs. A man with perfectly gelled hair was singing boleros and pop ballads into a portable PA system. A stout woman with the face of sweating stone was chopping meat and pressing corn into fresh tortillas. And all of the nieces and aunts and grandmothers and godmothers also took their turn on the piñata. Candy fell. The little ones scurried. But I couldn't keep my eyes off Luis's father. He's tall and thick with the muscles of hard work. He had his jeans up really high, belted really tight. And he had his cotton long-sleeve Oxford unbuttoned midway down his chest, 
which was full of furry gray ringlets of hair. He kept his big arms crossed, his face unmoving, stern and serious. He crushed my hand when he shook it. His fingers were like hardened sausages, their skin rough, I imagined, from building things and fixing motors. He looked like the great Mexican film star El Indio Fernandez, the guy who protects the village, who stays alive as the sun sets. One thing he wasn't, though, was a man who cried. That was clear. So when I saw him on the stairs of the memorial hall, it rocked me to the core. The shirt was still unbuttoned, the jeans still high, but his son was dead. And now his face was red and almost kind of pickled. His eyes were pools of salt. It was as if his body never expected to know what it was now knowing, as if his muscles and strength had never fathomed that something as intangible and immaterial as sadness or grief or loss could break them down. Upstairs in the chapel, deep silence was sporadically punctured by spasms of grief, anguished cries quickly muffled by the sweaters and shawls of comforting shoulders. In his prayers for Luis, the priest told us not to grieve him, but to use his loss as an inspiration to keep living our lives to the fullest, to leave the service focused squarely on the here and now. He prayed for the family, for Luis's three kids, for his poor, poor wife. And then he prayed for the city. He begged God to have mercy on Tijuana, to take its streets back into his loving arms. I put my arm around my sister-in-law and asked what she was feeling. Sadness, she said, and a lot of anger. And anger is the right word, because Luis was 34. He had just opened a little store to sell glass for windows. And sure, he liked a new car now and again. And sure, he liked to pick up the check and be all macho and valiente once in a while. But he was solidly middle-class TJ. And he was not a criminal or a drug dealer or a money launderer or a CEO or a corporate scion or a politician. He was taken just so he could be used to get some money for someone who had even less. He was taken because he could be taken. He was taken because he could die and it didn't matter to his killers because his life, like theirs, did not matter, didn't count. This is no city, no country, no world, no time, no era to get precious and high and mighty about the value of human life. Our blood, all of our blood, runs cheap. We mean nothing to no one. We are as good as what we are worth. To factories, to smugglers, to bosses, to marketing companies, to kidnappers. Discardable, dumpable, interchangeable. It used to be that the kidnapped almost somehow, if we were to kind of perversely confess it, deserved it. They were shady or their parents were shady. There was always some connection. Nobody gets rich without shortchanging good at least once, right? Even when they took the pop star, some of you may know, Talia, when they took her sister, people joked that it was her fault for having her sister, who not only made bad pop music, but married Tommy Mottola. But even she was returned. At the end of the memorial, I met an old friend of my father-in-law who they call El Manitas, little hands, and they were anything but. He says, I, I hear you write about Tijuana up there. Did you see the letter in the paper today, he asked me. I hadn't. It's about the kidnappings, all this horrible mess. You need to read it. Then you need to write about it. It's important for people in the U.S. to learn about what's happening here. Mexico needs to be criticized. It's the only way things will change. The letter he was referring to was written, written by Aiko Enriquez Nishikawa. Her brother Celso had suffered a fate similar to Luis's. Like Luis, Celso came from a hard-working family who came to TJ to pursue the opportunities that the city promised to offer, first during the industrialization boom of the 1960s and 70s, and then during the global boom of the 90s. He was a father and a husband. Celso was also clean. He was taken. Money was given. Phone calls were made. Threats were made. Proof of life stopped, so the family stopped giving money. The kidnappers surrounded the house with cars and opened fire ready and willing to kill anyone they could for more money, or just ready and willing to create more fear, because that is what is happening here also. The desire for power is the desire to create fear. Too many Scarface and Godfather movies, too many David Mamet plays, too much Tarantino. To have power is to create fear. As the father of a dead narco junior in Tijuana once said, I gave my son everything. I gave him the best home. I gave him the best car, the best family name. But I now realize that I could never give him what he wanted the most, power. Aiko's family called the city police, then the federal police, then the military police, and nobody came to help them. 
Celso was surely dead, and they had endured all that they could. So they packed up their house and, like so many, left the city to live in San Ysidro or Chula Vista or National City. And this is how she ended the letter. This letter represents the pain, the anguish, and the anger that we feel. It's a desperate cry for an answer, an explanation, a hope, a demand of our rights. The ones we never had while living this hell that we don't wish on anyone. More so when we couldn't get help from the people who are paid to protect and serve, combat and take care of us, guard the safety of citizens. But unfortunately, they are the ones who protect and help the criminals get what they want. When are you going to take action? When are you going to clean the municipal, state, and federal institutions in a real and forceful way? When will there be real laws that punish kidnappers and the bad behavior of corrupt agencies with sentences that serve as an example so that this doesn't keep happening, she wrote. What will happen to our country with its good people? When will we stop living so cowardly and start fighting for a better future for the sons and daughters of Mexico? I love Mexico and Tijuana, she wrote. It's the place where I was born, my country, but it is impossible to live here. Goodbye, Tijuana. In 2001, the Tijuana critic Leobardo Sarabia wrote an essay about the impact of narcoculture on Tijuana life. Violence in Tijuana, he wrote in 2001, is limited to those who have something to fear, who work in the dirty business. Tijuana is no Beirut, no Medellin, Tijuana violence is selective, pragmatic, at the service of the defense and amplification of territory acquisition. End quote. Yet seven years later, a week after Aiko published her letter, a week after Luis died, Sarabia had changed his tune. Violence in Tijuana, he admitted, was no longer selective or pragmatic or part of the strategies of organized narco-crime. Narco-violence joined with increasing poverty and desperation equals a new culture of violence one that unloads its clips in a wild spray. Intended targets be damned. Now entire restaurants are held up at once. Now taxi drivers are kidnappers. Now ATM machines get plucked from vestibules within seconds. Now violence is not limited to anyone. Everyone has something to fear. Violence creates a new reality, he wrote just last month. Another atmosphere. It transforms the familiar city into an ominous one, nocturnal, uninhabitable. You are listening to Josh Kuhn on the crisis of violence in Mexico. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. For information or to listen to past broadcasts, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. I'm David Lazarus. Coming up on the next Air Talk, Larry Mantle broadcasts live from the Democratic National Convention in Denver. It's the Barack Obama coming out party, and he'll be joined by his new vice presidential nominee. Larry will have all the players at the convention coming on as guests, offering insights and play-by-play. You don't want to miss it. That's coming up on the next Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Lisa Mullins. It's not easy to get your head around another culture on the other side of the globe. Same goes for folks looking in on our way of life in America. What is that? This is so vulgar. This is so low class. This is American. Understanding and clearing up misunderstandings are all in a day's work on PRI's The World. Weekdays at noon on 89.3 KPCC. Welcome to two weeks of convention coverage on KPCC. Air talks at the Democratic Convention, and then I'll be at the GOP Convention. Larry and I will share two hours in the morning and two in the afternoon to bring you all the happening stuff. I'm Pat Morrison. Bob Barr will be here. The former Republican congressman is running for president as a libertarian. Could he take votes from John McCain? Does he care? He's here Monday at 11 a.m. Weekdays on 89.3 KPCC. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Good morning. I'm Steve Inskeep. From the studios of NPR West, this is Day to Day. I'm Alex Cohen. I'm Madeline Bram, coming up practicing. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Robert Siegel. This is Talk of the Nation. I'm Neil Conan in Washington. Morning Edition, Day to Day. All Things Considered, Talk of the Nation. More NPR News than anywhere else. 
on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Laura Villalpando. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Now, it's back to Josh Kuhn on the crisis of violence in Mexico. Everyone in cities like Tijuana and Juarez and Culiacán knows someone. Someone who has been kidnapped, whose family is in a witness protection program, someone who's dead. The hottest cars on the used car lots come with bulletproof windows. People are putting up new fences around their homes, new bars on their windows. The newest real estate trends in border cities are luxury high-rises that advertise, above all else, high-tech security and surveillance systems. When the phones ring at the office and the voice on the other end gets the name slightly wrong or asks about schedules or asks too many questions, you know to hang up. When the phone rings at home and the voice on the other, on the other end tells you that it's your aunt calling from Los Angeles, yet all of your aunts are dead, you know to hang up. When a car sits for too long outside your home or your business, you know to keep watch. When you go out for a drink with friends, everyone knows to call each other as soon as you get home. When the calls come every day, when the cars wait every day, you know to change your schedule, to not keep a routine, to work at home. You know to sell your car and get a different one every few months. You know that in Mexico, like Johannesburg or Jerusalem or Sao Paulo, this fear is your life. As Tijuana police chief Alberto Capella said after he survived an attack of 200 gunshots earlier this year, quote, it's as if criminals have corrupted us all. The book on his nightstand was the policy anthology entitled Transnational Crime and Public Security. It was ever so symbolically riddled with the holes of gunfire. I came home from the memorial for Luis mad. Anger for Luis's killers, but more anger for the cops who let it happen. Anger for the cops who let the cops let it happen. For the military troops who let the cops let the cops let it happen. For the mayor and the governor and all the lawyers who look the other way. I was angry also at globalization. I was angry at free trade. I was angry at capitalism. I was angry at Thomas Friedman for getting people to believe the world is flat. I was angry at my colleagues for romanticizing the border, for refusing to admit that it's a violent place and a criminal place, no matter how beautiful and incredible and culturally rich it is, that horrible things do happen and that we need to talk about them. I was angry at friends who wrote off narco-violence as U.S. media myths, and I was angry most of all at myself for having agreed with all of them at one point. More than Luis, I was mourning our world order. I was mourning the fatal character of the global economy, its perennial gale of creative destruction, to borrow a phrase of Joseph Schumpeter. The kidnapping of Luis and the kidnapping of Celso leave indelible marks on their families, but they should also leave indelible marks on all of us. Mexico has been kidnapped, abducted, and tortured and held hostage by the corruptions of capitalist striving and economic inequality. As Schumpeter wrote back in 1947, Capitalism, he said, creates a critical frame of mind which, after having destroyed the moral authority of so many other institutions, in the end turns against its own. To think, as I did, that the tragedy of Luis's death was that he played by the rules was naive and myopic and arrogant. The tragedy is the system that those rules belong to, a system based on depletion and exhaustion and endless exploitation of workers, of ideals, of morals, of resources, and of bodies. Now, I'm not suggesting that blame be taken away from individuals whose actions produce fatal consequences. Individuals kidnapped Luis. Individuals extorted his family. Individuals cut off his finger. Individuals dumped his body. But we are all motivated by the systems and beliefs and values we inherit as true. As Marx put it, the traditions of all the dead generations weigh like a nightmare on the brain of the living. History, he so famously surmised, is made by individuals who act only in concert with the history that has already passed. Blazing new trails, yes, but on already drawn maps. And Luis's kidnappers, like so many in any country where poverty and social disintegration are the prevailing order, acted within a context that any of us who too quickly judge them are also a part of. 
the glaring and extreme inequities of globalization, the so-called digital divide that might as well look like the Sonoran Desert or a Bombay cityscape or a Sao Paulo hillside. So I'll say what many others, from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs to George Soros even to Rebecca Solnit, have already said. There needs to be an ethics of globalization, an ethics of capitalism, a morality of modernity. The men who killed Luis, who exist on a continuum of corruption and murder that extends, yes, all the way to our White House, are murderers and criminals. And they blatantly and unforgivably flaunted and rebuked and ignored those codes that must from now on, be held precious to the stability of a human future. Now, if I sound like I'm doing a bad, amateurish Hannah Arendt impression, I apologize. But ever since that memorial, I have had her writings on the Eichmann trial bumping around in my head, hearing echoes of her infamous banality of evil charge and the way I've been thinking about drug lords and mafiosos. What is globalization's banality of evil? What kind of moral shifts, ethical abysses does the relentless pursuit of free trade, profiteering, and imperial accumulation, and national security privatization engender in everyday citizens who are not invited into the executive lounges and boardrooms of global bigwiggery? What Mexico is living out is just one headline grabbing too close to the U.S. for comfort example of the dark side of the global economic promise, extreme inequity that produces extreme behavior that results in extreme casualties. Indeed, Tijuana has been a central setting for this unfolding story, whether it was the opening of the border to foreign maquiladora manufacturing plants in the 1970s, establishing a dependence on export processing, factories for jobs, establishing a pattern of wage labor abuses, establishing a pattern of feverish migration and overpopulation and ecological ruin that continues to this day, or the blow dealt in 1994 by the passage of NAFTA, opening the border to the transit of imports and exports, but closing it violently, militarily, to the transit of the people who make and consume those imports and exports. NAFTA, of course, also opened the border to U.S. agribusiness and biotech companies whose genetically modified corn has all but destroyed Mexican farming and turned local Mexican farmers into migrants working on assembly lines in El Monte or forced them to convert their fields into poppy and pot crops for quick cash. The cumulative result of all this has been a border metropolis in Tijuana of over two million people, where poverty grows daily on hillsides made of recycled cardboard, where the glimmering steel and glass bounty of San Diego venture capital and international banking is in perfect, unblocked, plain view of an Indian from Michoacan who walks stairs made of tires and drinks water tainted with toxic runoff. If there are indeed social costs of the border's industrialization, as a 2002 research study decided at the Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies at UCSD, then those social costs, those costs shifted away from the moneymakers and on to communities and citizens, must also include the kidnapping industry and the drug economy. They must also include the death of Luis and Celso. For Luis's kidnappers and the drug cartel bosses and their kowtowing hitmen, evil is banal. The everyday death and killing carries no moral rebuke, no ethical doubt, no human problem. If Eichmann was, as Arendt suggested, the perverted extreme of the modern bureaucrat, then how could we not, if even for a moment, consider kidnappers and cartel hitmen as the perverted extremes of the global capitalist? Kidnappings and drug sales are, aren't they, at their core, market operations, economies like any other, fueled by the maximization of profits, drugs, just one more product shipped from Mexico's export processing zone, so beloved by the U.S. and Asia, and the biggest export at that, making more money for Mexico than oil or tourism. Drugs are a multi-billion dollar economy, and a multi-billion dollar economy that works, dirty money ending up clean in real estate deals and private businesses. It also just so happens to be a deadly economy. Karl Marx, ever underestimated for his ability to turn a phrase, put it best. One capitalist always kills many. Three, here are some numbers to consider. In 2007, there were 2,500 to 3,000 drug-related executions in Mexico, 300 of which were cops. In 2008, between May 1 and May 9, nine high-ranking police officers were killed leading some of the remaining officers in similar positions to ask the United States for political asylum, leading the U.S. government to enter yet another word into the lexicon of homeland security and legislative xenophobia, narco-terrorism. In 2008, more than 1,350 people have been murdered in drug trafficking-related crimes. Those murdered include police, judges, doctors, lawyers, soldiers, reporters, and politicians. The killings have been private and public, individual, and mass. 
Most attribute this surge in killings to either, one, the government actually trying to go after the cartels and the cartels doing their thing and fighting right back, or two, the splintering of one cartel in particular in Tijuana, the Ariano Felix cartel, and their sloppy bids for control and power by younger and less experienced cartel bosses, junior capitalists. Between 2000 and 2005, cocaine shipments from South America to Mexico doubled. In 2007, the cross-border drug trade was worth over $25 billion. $10 billion of that comes south across the border into Mexico as bulk cash and then is laundered clean. In Tijuana alone, in 2008, a battle between rival factions within the Ariano Felix cartel left 14 dead on a Sunday morning after another week's earlier shooting went down next to a kindergarten. Seven people were killed in 36 hours the first weekend in June, and a week later, a bundle of marijuana valued at $2.2 million was found in jalapeno pepper crates at the Otay Crossing. Forty doctors have been kidnapped in Tijuana this year alone. When the Mexican president, Felipe Calderón, took office in 2006, one of his principal vows was to clean up all of this. He continues to order federal police and military police to the country's most battle-worn regions. And in late 2007, he worked with President Bush to write up the so-called Merida Initiative, designed to deliver $1.4 billion U.S. dollars to the Mexican government over three years to fight the drug war. The ironies of the initiative are twofold. Those billions would actually be spent to fight a war against the interests of U.S. consumers. The U.S. is less than 5% of the world's population and accounts for over half of the world's drug consumption. Most of what is consumed comes through Mexico. Second, 90% of all the guns used to kill all of the people who keep dying in Mexico come from shipments bought and sold in the United States. One of the narco favorites has long been the Colt 38 Super, which is about as American as Bob Seger. As the Mexican Attorney General Eduardo Mora told Portfolio magazine just last month, U.S. consumers are already financing the war, he said, only it's on the wrong side. There is no such thing as Mexican drug culture. There is only U.S.-Mexico drug culture. This is a transnational game, as much Los Angeles as Sinaloa, as much about the Sonoran Desert as Interstate 5. Just look at the most famous narco corrido, most famous drug border ballad of all time, Contrabando y Traición, Contraband and Treason, which starts with a car full of marijuana in Baja, but ends in an alley in Hollywood. It's a lesson that Orson Welles tried to teach us many years ago when he made Touch of Evil, the last great noir film that was about a version of Tijuana, Los Robles, Yet symbolically and importantly, it was actually shot not at the border, but in Venice Beach. The moral of the story was radical then, and I think it's still radical now. The touch of evil is not Mexico. In the film, the touch of evil is the United States. In his film, the most innocent man is actually Mexican. And the most corrupt man, well, was a white American, played by Wells himself. There was Mexican crime and vice, but it was allowed to happen because of joint efforts by Mexican and American lawmakers. All border towns bring out the worst in a country, Charlton Heston in his brown face outfit said in the film, but it's never clear just what country he's talking about. Four, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 17 through 23. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes. And chase after gifts. Jesus Blancornelas, the late founder of the Tijuana weekly newspaper Zeta, and by far Mexico's prime chronicler of narco culture, began his 2002 account of the rise of the Tijuana cartel helmed by the Ariano Felix brothers with a curious and potent claim quote, Drug traffic in Mexico and the United States owes more to government circumstances and less to opportunist mafiosos. If we blame the individuals, he said, we are not just barking up the wrong tree, we're in the wrong forest to begin with. The critique lies with the state, for it is the state that not only generates and regulates the laws that create and control the flows of illegal substances and illegal money, but it is the state that then allows those flows to happen all while feigning to criminalize it. The state creates criminals that the state protects. Or as the famed Mexican writer Carlos Monsiváis has put it, the emergence of the narco 
is the most serious episode of neoliberal criminality. If that is where the big business is, Monty Weiss wrote, the victims are the profits, and with them comes the protection of the mafias by power itself. Now, the narcos themselves know this all too well. In his 1997 DEA testimony, Alejandro Jodoyan, a.k.a. El Lobo, one of the Ariano Felix cartel's key hitmen, said this, In Tijuana, nobody kills for free. Every death has a reason, even though nobody is allowed to know what it is. Two instances from Blanco Nellis's drug history, which sadly is still yet to be published in English, and really ought to be, it is quite extraordinary, bear this situation out with great drama. In the first instance, is the Mexican ambassador to France writing to Blanco Nellis in 1994, accusing the governor's office of Baja California of being wittingly responsible for allowing drug violence to surge in the early 1990s and take over the political and economic life of Baja. In his words, quote, the state is responsible for the protection of drug traffickers and for the wave of violence it produces, end quote. After reading the letter in Zeta, the governor of Baja himself Ernesto Rufo Apel wrote a response in which he admitted that indeed his government lost control. Nautical culture had too easily, too overwhelmingly entered the realm of politics and security. As one critic has called it, a narco state was born. You are listening to Josh Kuhn on the crisis of violence in Mexico. This is Socalo. Check out our live events around town. On Wednesday, September 3rd, Take part, as Sokolo asks, L.A. versus Seattle, whose Pacific Rim is it? Sokolo has gathered together a distinguished panel that includes UCLA political scientist Steve Yeary, David Olson of the University of Washington, and Thomas O'Brien from the Center for International Trade and Transportation at Cal State Long Beach to discuss these two urban giants' approach toward Asia. They'll ask which city is better poised to take advantage of globalization in the Asian century. Are the teachers' unions too powerful, or are they not powerful enough? On Wednesday, September 9th, Joe Matthews, Irvine Senior Fellow at the New America Foundation, moderates a panel discussion. Finally, on Wednesday, September 10th, Jonathan Gold, Pulitzer Prize-winning food critic for LA Weekly, chews on whether there is such a thing as LA cuisine, with a panel of prominent local chefs. Admission to these and all Socolo events is free, but reservations are recommended. For more information or to hear past programs and lectures, just click on our website, socolola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return in a moment to Josh Kuhn on the crisis of violence in Mexico. Stay tuned to Socolo Radio. Here's Larry Mantle, prepping for the Democratic Convention in Denver. Okay, Mr. Film Week, name three actors from Colorado. Easy. Lon Chaney, Douglas Fairbanks, and Don Cheadle. Correct. Who's been in the World Series more recently, the Dodgers or the Colorado Rockies? Don't remind me. Okay, sorry. What are Rocky Mountain Oysters? Wait, I know this. Well, now that Larry Mantle's an expert on Colorado culture, he's ready to take on the Democrats. Air Talk broadcasts live from the Democratic Convention in Denver all next week, right here on 89.3 KPCC. You already know how to get KPCC on your radio and your computer. Now you can get NPR and KPCC News on your cell phone or PDA. Go to kpcc.org to learn about NPR Mobile from KPCC. You can get hourly headlines, news stories, or hear the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me quiz, all whenever it's convenient for you. NPR and KPCC News on air, online, and now on the phone, too. If you have a gas guzzler that needs to retire, we're here to help. Go to kpcc.org and learn how to donate your old car to KPCC. All you do is fill out a short form, and we'll take care of the rest, from arranging the pickup to sending you a tax receipt. Your car donation helps pay for KPCC programming and news coverage. Plus, you get an income tax deduction. Learn how it works at kpcc.org support. Laura Villalpando. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series. 
LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. And now it's back to Josh Kuhn on the crisis of violence in Mexico. It is getting hard to tell which side you're on, drugs or politics, the governor said. Things are heading in a dangerous direction. Indeed, in 1993, Blancornelas published a list of all the members of the PGR, Mexico's Federal Justice Agency, who had been on narco payrolls. The list was three pages long, and he reprints it in the book. The list, though, does not include the names of all the cops at every level of Mexican enforcement, including those who in the 1990s were busted for stealing cars in San Diego, who worked as bodyguards for the mafiosos, who moonlighted as members of El Pelaton, the firing squad of the Ariano Felix cartel, nor does it include the names of the 28 customs officers found in the mid-90s to be tied to mafiosos or the five border patrol agents who did the same. As more than one Tijuana critic has noted, in Tijuana there is way more than one drug cartel. There is the Ariano Felix, but there is also the PGR, the Mexican army, and the federal police. The collusion between traffickers and cops and government officials are what the New York Times Magazine very politely referred to as PACs is not a remarkable fact. It is the great transparency of Mexican politics, perfected during the 70-year rule of the PRI party. Centralized power kept things neat and tidy for a long time. Even the corrido singers sing about this. In their song about the narco wars, La Frontera Roja, Los Tucanes de Tijuana, do the usual Cuernos de Chiva, AK-47 talk, bigging up the narcos, but they quickly talk about how the guns are used by mafiosos, just like they are by the police. There is yerba and coke and killing for territory in the song, but the protagonists are mafiosos and politicians. As the song puts it, the mafia has power, the TV said, but how is the police not seen as the bigger fish? The mafia does not have an end, The law cooperates with them. The red border, they call it in the song, for all of the blood that runs through it. This past May, the chief of Mexican police was killed in a hit, ordered by the Sinaloa cartel and carried out by a federal officer. In the 90s, Mexico's anti-drug czar was famously found to be working for the cartels. In Baja, General Sergio Aponte who leads the anti-drug offensive in Baja, in April named the names of corrupt officials on the pages of Frontera, the daily paper in Tijuana, and revealed that Baja's anti-kidnapping squad is actually a kidnapping squad. <laughs> Which is why all the current claims, including the magazine piece in the Times that ran yesterday, that the current claims that the Mexican police force is turning a new leaf of trust and security have left everyone just a bit skeptical. But why here? Why the border? Well, border lines are, by their very nature, fertile for what security analysts call crimogenic conditions, because they divide markets and restrict exchange of goods and people, creating differentials and asymmetries in cost and incentive and profit. And all kinds of criminal enterprises usually take advantage of all these conditions and exploit the asymmetries. Auto theft, money laundering, trafficking, black markets, smuggling and prostitution. Sarabia has called this the fatal geography of Mexican destiny. The border between the U.S. and Mexico is the only border in the world that separates a superpower from a non-superpower. It's the only border that separates a developing nation from the world's richest country. The only border that separates consumers who spend five times more a year than their southern neighbors. It is also the most crossed border in the world, and ever since NAFTA, crossing has intensified, making illegal trafficking easier and more active. As the anthropologist Carolyn Nordstrom reminds us, there is no such thing as legal routes of trade and illegal routes of trade. All routes of trade and traffic are markets. The reality of the contemporary world, she says, is that what we call the economy is always legal and illegal. Where legal products move, so do extra legal products, the cocaine in the jalapeno cans. Often in the same trucks, often in the same boxes. And after all, the Olympics are as legal as Darfur is. This blurring began to take shape in the 1970s, when the U.S. began its crackdown on the cocaine trade based in Colombia and Miami, and the trade shifted to the Mexican state of Sinaloa. Soon, Mexican mafias were responsible for 70% of cocaine consumed annually in the United States, leading to an estimated $30 billion a year in drug profits. 
The destination was the United States, and Tijuana was simply in the way. The Ariano Felix brothers came to TJ to exploit this in the wayness in 1984. They rose in power because the government allowed them to. As the 80s became the 90s, the stage was increasingly fixed and everyone knew the score. All drug murders went unsolved because cops were gangsters, politicians were investors, lawyers were on the books, and justice was paid for. After a U.S. DEA agent was tortured and killed in 1985, the suspected killers were protected by the then governor of Jalisco, who never brought charges. When Carlos Salinas became the president of Mexico years later, that same governor was appointed to be his attorney general. The Salinas reign was the epitome of the narco state eating itself alive. In 1993, Ariano Felix hitmen executed the highest-ranking church official in Mexico, the Cardinal Ocampo. They did it in Guadalajara while an Aeromexico flight waited for them, waited for them, then took off, landed in Tijuana, where federal agents let them escape. Then came the 1994 triple threat, a shootout between state and federal police that left five dead, the murder of PRI presidential candidate by an unstable factory work, worker who was believed to be on the payroll of the drug kingpin El Chapo Guzman, as well as the payroll of Salinas himself, and then the murder of the chief of police. And yet nobody did a thing. I mean, how could they? How could we? Because 1994 was the year that free trade would change the world, right? When modern Mexico joined postmodern America in a quest for global economic reform. So what if the Ariano Felix hitmen were actually from San Diego gangs? So what if the drugs all flowed north? The U.S. was innocent. So was Mexico. The drug war was kept under the radar and off the political stage, and the audience was asked to believe that the drama that they were watching wasn't actually happening. The binational choice to turn a blind eye opened the floodgates for blood and bullets and money. In 1999, the Ariano Felix gang were responsible for 400 deaths that we know of in one year. They were brutal in the 90s, unimaginably cruel and savage, killing anyone for looking at them the wrong way, spilling a drink, crashing a party. As one of their hitmen put it, killing is a lark for them. They laugh after a death. They go eat lobster and rosarito. Ramon Ariano was killed in 2002 and Benjamin was put in jail for life. But the cartel's grip on Mexican politics was maintained most obviously in 2005 with the election of Tijuana mayor of Hank Ron, a billionaire criminal with ties to the Ariano Felix brothers and ties to just a few assassinations of his own. When Hank left office, some thought Tijuana had hope that something could shift. The years since he left office were more quiet than usual. But then this year had to come along, and the news media had to show those kindergartners running for their lives beneath a flurry of bullets over and over again. Five. But what's there to do? After drug gangs opened fire on each other, in January, next in the kindergarten, the Tijuana fiction writer and blogger Rafa Cefedra weighed in on his blog. If fear wins, he wrote, we will end up prisoners in our homes like they did in Medellin. Our fight is for liberty, for the ability to move freely through this city that is our Tijuana, to keep fighting so that more punishment will be brought to the criminals. The fault is our own, he said, the open and receptive character of our city that has made it known as a progressive place, a place where change can happen, is also the characteristic that is now working against its survival. When one of Rafa's friends calls him as the shootings are happening, she tells him, we've lost her. And the her is the city. We've lost Tijuana, she said. But Rafa refuses to agree. He refuses to give up on the city he loves. His sentiment reminded me of another call for Tijuana's salvation, issued during an earlier era of drug traffic and political corruption, the 1950s, when the Korean War gave Tijuana military tourism a much-needed shot in the arm. It involved the journalist Manuel Acosta Mesa, editor of the Imparcial newspaper, who broke story after story about a crime syndicate running Tijuana life. When the cartel was found to be using schoolchildren to move weed, Acosta Mesa began a daily attack in the press, exposing the cartel's links to prostitution rings and local politicians. When the cartel went after him, Mesa ran headlines like, Here we are, you vultures, and I accuse you. In 1956, he was executed right in front of his house. But in a rare case of responsible Hollywood filmmaking about border life, Columbia Pictures released a film called The Tijuana Story in response to this killing the very same year. Now, granted, the film dubbed Tijuana as the, as the frankest, gaudiest sin town in the world, but its true focus was the story of Mesa and his battle with the vice lords, the struggle to get Tijuana cleaned up and the death of the free press. 
Throw in James Darren for some teen beat star power and tourist pot-smoking subplots and shirtless beach scenes. But even he, James Darren, ends up dead, running from the cops into the Pacific Ocean before washing up limp on the rocks. The film's final scene is a Costa Mesa's funeral, and his former publisher stops the procession to offer some final words. This is what he says. Knowing Manuel as I did, I can tell you what would have satisfied him today. Not our tears or our guilt, but the knowledge that he did not die in vain, that the bullets that crashed in his body infuriated us into action, gave us the indignation and courage to resolve that we have had enough of terrorism and gangsterism, that living under the syndicate without pride is intolerable. Manuel was right. There is no power in the world stronger than us. Together, we can clean up Tijuana. All it takes is the will. Infuriate us into action, enough of terrorism and gangsterism, no power in the world stronger than us. As the rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel once wrote, few are guilty, but all are responsible. If we admit that the individual is in some measure conditioned or affected by the spirit of society, an individual's crime discloses society's corruption. And so in Tijuana and Juarez, citizens march. In Tijuana, a banner now flies on a city overpass that reads, we've had enough death penalty to all kidnappers. While on the surface it is important and valuable for Calderon to be declaring war against corruption and drugs, while it is important and valuable for the U.S. to pour billions into this initiative, both moves will be ultimately futile, because both moves miss the bigger picture. The situation we find ourselves in is over a century long. It is a situation born of imperial conquest in 19th century land grabs and attempts to use the expansion of territory as a way of securing markets. It is a situation that has been inherited, one that has structured every fiber, every cell of Mexico's relationship with the United States. Drugs and violence are a Mexican crisis because they are also a U.S. crisis and because they are a crisis of the global moment, nourished by economic and social asymmetries of such false equalizers as free trade and globalization. Drug wars and the endemic poverty of resources and the so-called mathematics of inequality that Bill McKibben writes about that fuel all of this can be healed, but only as part of a larger culture of healing and change. If Emmanuel Wallerstein is right that the demise of neoliberal globalization has begun, then if a long incremental revolution of structural transformation of lifeways, social ethics, and attitudes toward the responsibilities we all bear as stakeholders in the greater commons is indeed upon us, as unignorable as a carbon cloud or a dried oil well or a fallow field of Mexican farm, then the U.S.-Mexican drug crisis might just have what nobody has assumed could be possible one day, an end in sight. Six, I want to call up the request line and make a special request to the border DJ. I know you got the new one from El Potro de Sinaloa to play, or that new one from Tigrillo Palma, or classics from Los Invasores or Los Tucanes, or that, that tune they do about Ramon Arellano. But how about tonight we hear some stuff that's not on your playlist, some tunes that have yet to be written. Instead of corridos about the mafiosos, instead of the women who dress up as nuns to smuggle cocaine, instead of the simulated AK-47 gunshot blasts, instead of los rasos holding rifles next to young girls in bikinis and cowboy hats, how about we hear a corrido for the missing, a corrido for the dead, a corrido for mourners, a corrido for a lost country, for inequality? I know, I know, they're hard to find. You won't hear them bumping out of Suburbans or Ram Chargers or Tahoes. They don't sell them at swap meets or even at Sanborns. You'll hear them in living rooms and churches and community centers, though. Melodies shaped in sighs and sobs, choruses sculpted by cries. You know how everyone always says that corridos tell the truth about Mexico. Well, these corridos will tell the truth, too, but in ways we haven't heard yet. So put one on, if you don't mind, and play it loud so that all of Sonora can hear it, all of Baja, all of Sinaloa and Jalisco and Los Angeles and D.C., let it bounce off the boulders into the poppy fields and into every plaza that's ever been controlled. Let it break the glass of tinted windows and cocaine mirrors. Let it rattle through Los Pinos and the White House and through every Blackwater training station and every Border Patrol ammo locker. I can't guarantee, Mr. DJ, that it will be a hit. But I promise you, from deep in my heart, that someone will be listening. And maybe, just maybe, it's going to catch on. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Los Angeles-based writer Josh Kuhn. Now we turn it over to the Socolo audience. Carlos Aguilar, it's a question how effective has the Calderon administration been with this new initiative of cracking down on, on the narco-terrorist? How effective has it been? Yes. Well, 
on the one hand, it's been effective in the sense that there's been an initiative and that there has been more discussion than, more sustained discussion over a longer period of time than there's been in the past, I would say. Now, how actually effective it's been depends on who you listen to. Their administration will claim that it's been very effective and the way you can tell is because so many people are dying and because so many people are killing each other, i.e. the logic being that the more the administration clamps down, the more drug traffickers will kill each other, which might be true in some cases, and some analysts have actually suggested that indeed it, it, it is true. Others say that the problem is what it's doing is splintering cartels, so that what used to be three centralized cartel organizations are now becoming 40 or 50. And now these are, again, inexperienced. Um, not that I have nostalgia for the old days, but th there is something a bit more dangerous of, let's say, a cartel versus a gang, if we can actually make that distinction. I don't know if we can, but if, if, hypothetically. I think it's so just too early. It's very easy to be cynical. If you survey the last 40 years of Mexican political history and the drug, anti-drug initiatives of the Salinas administration, the Cedillo uh, uh, administration, the Fox administration, they all had anti-drug campaigns. And it hasn't changed much. Part of what I think is... And what I'm trying to get at in this, I'm still kind of working all this stuff out, as I think everyone is who's facing all of this, is to what extent is fighting on the ground like that a Band-Aid and a deadly Band-Aid that allows quick-cut answers to social problems and global problems that I understand are indeed may sound theoretical or philosophical at some level, but I think that until government agents and analysts admit and understand the bigger picture that this is taking place in, that I think then the way that policy happens is going to start changing. You've just heard Los Angeles-based writer Josh Kuhn. This is Socolo Radio, the on-air home of the Socolo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Laura Villalpando. Socolo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our free events around town. For more information, go to socolola.org. That's Z-O-C. A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. The executive producer for Socolo Radio is Peter Stencil. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome to 